This part one of two episodes of Over the Edge features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Vishnand Lal, VP Technology, Strategy, and Ecosystems at Dell Technologies. Vish is an experienced CTO and a highly regarded telecom visionary. He is responsible for defining Dell's technology strategy in the big six domains, including 5G, Edge, data management, cloud, AI, and security. Widely recognized for his contributions to the industry, Vish has also held CTO executive leadership roles in telecommunications for 25 years, including Telstra, Ericsson, Extreme, and Nortel. Vish has been awarded a fundamental patent for LTE, published several widely cited technology papers, and holds several patents for the design of cloud-based mobile applications and communication services. In this episode, Vish talks about laying the railroads for telecommunications. He discusses his career path and the work he did developing personal data appliances and smartphones. Vish goes over development and privatization of the internet. He explains how artificial intelligence has become a huge part of Dell products and delves into details about the build-out of infrastructure, connectivity, and bandwidth. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Vish Nandlal, VP Technology Strategy and Ecosystems at Dell Technologies. Hey Vish, how you doing today? Not bad, yourself Matt, great to see you. Yeah, likewise. You know, one of the things that I always like to ask people out of the shoot is, how did you get interested in technology? I grew up on the east coast of Canada in a province of New Brunswick, which is one of the Atlantic provinces. And, you know, kind of a, had a really interesting upbringing, but it was in the shadow of this massive university called the University of New Brunswick. And it's one of the Canada's oldest university campuses. And I lived behind the engineering building for about 10 years of my life. And I would, I guess, through osmosis, just get bound up and intertwined with a lot of different technology discussions with professors, with students. As a, as a, as a child? As, yeah, quite, quite young. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so to me, I think the whole thought of getting into engineering was locked in at a, at a pretty early age. I mean, you're, you're about the same age as me, I think, Matt. So a lot of this happened during the, the halcyon days of, you know, the personal computer coming up and yeah. this whole notion of I can kind of affect massive change through the power of raw compute. What, what was your first personal computer? First personal computer would have been probably a Commodore 64, which was uh, kind of one of those fascinating introductions to the world of, you know, do, digital. Do you remember, remember Geos? The graphical environment operating oh system. Gosh. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, so I worked for Berkeley Softworks. And I, at the time, I was running the documentation department. So you probably right. read my manuals. <laughs> well, at one football. point, Geos was the largest installed base operating system in the world because it shipped with every single Commodore 64. <laughs> so it had millions of units, which is nothing today. But it, it was really kind of, at one point, it was the, the number one installed base operating system. That, that is hilarious. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the interesting thing about early days of any kind of technology diffusion is that you get to be the first and the pioneer of and subsequently get replaced by the, the folks who come in the, 
the echo of that technology. And that's, that's always fascinating to me how that works out. Now, was your interest primarily on the hardware side or the software side? Or obviously, you got a lot of telecom in your background. Was it like RF engineering? Like, What was your primary engineering interest? It was always on the hardware side. I guess this is prior to the software boom. We were still, in the way I like to look at it, is we were laying the railroads for the industry was the hardware. And the software came and took advantage of all these deployed capabilities that we had designed. So back in my day, what we called hardware was probably decidedly different than what people call hardware today. We, we would do board design. We would develop the ASICs and the FPGAs. We'd usually develop our own operating systems, as, as you've, you've probably had a chance to do in your life. You know, we'd develop most of the firmware. And then th- that was kind of put on a silver platter for software developers to come in and try to bust apart. It was a different discipline, definitely, back then. How did you end up in telecom specifically? Because you, you did a door through Ericsson as the CTO, I understand. How did you end up in, in telecom? Back when I started into the workforce, would have been 19... 19- 94, 1995, the place where every good Canadian engineer went was Bell Northern Research. That was kind of the the beacon for most people's career in intellectual engineering. So that, that was exactly the path I followed. I got my iron ring and then I made a beeline to, to Ottawa, Ontario, and joined the advanced technology team at Bell Northern Research, which eventually became Nortel and obviously a lot of people are fairly familiar with the story of Nortel. So, so back in the 90s, what was advanced technology from a telecom standpoint? Because like, so, so 95 is when like the browser first landed on my radar. And yeah. I remember telecom, if I recall correctly, it was like packet switched over my dead body. But I don't know for sure. So t- tell me what advanced technology looked like back in 95. Well, there, there was a number of things that we were trying to solve. Believe it or not, Nortel was in the middle of something called Visit, which was this basically a teleconferencing system where you could, much like how we enjoy Zoom over podcasts and conference discussions over the pandemic. Back in 1995, there was a real view that you know, maybe we could have video television type, you know, kind of a AT&T showed to- the first video phone, operating video phone at the 1964 World's Fair. It took, right. only took us it's, it's been 30 more now. years before. So I, I worked on some of those early systems. We did prototype systems. The headline for, for Nortel was something called Visit. Also worked on some of the early smartphones. I guess we wouldn't have called them smartphones back, back then. There were personal data appliances. And we had a probably one of the, the, the first to, to hit the market. And in fact, didn't really hit the market. It was something that was completely developed and then put into a you know some kind of dark, dusty warehouse, probably right next door to the Ark of the Covenant. And that particular device was something that could do email. You could have voice conversations on it. You could take notes. We had little games and stuff for, you know, downtime distractors and all sorts of interesting things. But ultimately, Nortel decided not to commercialize it. Well, I mean, Canada is the origination point of what I think the first credible smartphone with research in motion, or most people know as BlackBerry, Blackberry. which preceded the sort of iPhone by years and for a good stretch of time was probably the most advanced smartphone. I still miss that keyboard, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was nothing compelling about it. But uh, Absolutely. I mean, those were the types of things that we had used as advanced technology. The, in fact, that bled into one of the first full R&D projects because it, most of my career, I, I was a researcher in the early days and then went into pure R&D. We had decided to develop effectively just a, a, a share-nothing processing platform that could scale out for voice communications. What does that mean, share nothing? 
Meaning that effectively each of these processing elements had memory and context that didn't have to be distributed to any types of peer processing elements in order to scale. They could each be deployed individually. And as you individually deploy new processing elements, the system scaled in processing power. Is it like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going back to telco. Is it like line cards and dial tone scaling or uh, was it? No, no, this, this was pure processing for voice switching. So as a voice call came in, you terminated it, you connected mm-hmm. it to a different appliance and pulled the, the context for that subscriber and then rang it and completed the session. So all the control plane processing had to occur in some kind of. Was this, so this was digital switching, part. basically. This was, was still, digital switching. Okay. And it wasn't, wasn't IP based. It was actually a switch networks. It absolutely was, yeah. Yeah, super interesting. We were running it against an architecture at Nortel called DMS, which was digital multiplexing switching, which was Nortel was one of the first companies to come out with digital switching, which kind of made their name in telephony. And the evolution of that was, well, how do I scale the compute on that so that we can get to multi-millions of busy hour call attempts? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, at the time was really exciting to me. I'm doing multiprocessing systems. You know, the downfall of working in an architecture that's largely opaque to the general public is that it's very difficult to get any kind of attaboys from your parents about what you're doing. They would literally just say, oh, you could, you can do the same thing that you could do 10 years ago, except right. more of it. My phone still works. <laughs> well, that's really fantastic. Yeah. It really made me prepare for my whole career in that I was never, ever going to get recognized as someone who was doing something that was of interest to the general population. Yeah. Now, now for those in the audience that that maybe got a little lost with this this inside baseball terminology, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. So, could, could you describe to the audience what a circuit switch network is and what a packet switch network is and like how that relates to everything today? Yeah, how to back into that kind of discussion. So in the early days of telecom, the primary information that we were transacting in was voice packets, was, you know, encoding voice information. And the way we would do that was to use a synchronous network. So today networks are are largely asynchronous. Back then there were deterministic slot times in which you can transmit some information signals. And each of those information signals were of identical length. So it was largely uniform in terms of what you're switching. And as a result, very predictable. As long as it was switching fast enough, I could hold a number of different conversations simultaneously on the same link. The interesting thing about that was if people are pausing, there's a bunch of slots that are effectively empty because there's no information to be carried. And so it was that recognition that there's opportunities to put in other information where we could statistically multiplex mm-hmm. and that there were gains to be had in being able to do that. And then we also recognize that there were some efficiencies for different applications where you could have different sized information packets being transmitted. When your only application is voice, you can standardize on one thing. It's one size fits all. If you're transmitting a massive document then kind of having it split up into small little chunks is very inefficient as opposed to just sending it in a big packet, for instance. And so this notion of let's have many different size packets and be able to statistically multiplex things, and instead of requiring time synchronization everywhere, we'll have effectively an asynchronous system. All those properties kind of started to coalesce together to form this new era of packet switch networks. And that's where IP came in. And the idea was, instead of having something that was pristine and deterministic, 
we'd have something that's the best effort and we'd understand how to compensate for errors and other things using transport protocols and retransmission and and that we felt that this could be deployed much more quickly and could accommodate much more traffic and at the end of the day become more economical to deploy. And all those things proved to be true, of course. I mean, today we rarely see time division multiplexing as the principle for, for switching across the internet. Albeit, it still does exist. It is there in pockets. Well, you know, everything old is is new again. Because when you think about voice, it's kind of the the original time series data in some ways. It really uh, is. And when you intuitively think of, we talk about the internet as pipes. When you intuitively think of pipes, you think of putting something in, in one end and putting the next thing behind it, the next thing behind it, and it all sort of forces itself in the same order that you put it in out the other end. And that's how the original telephone networks worked. I mean, when they were analog networks, they were like literally physical switches that would connect the circuits together and you would literally be connecting from Los Angeles to New York through a physical circuit and it would send the, the, well, I mean, at some point it was actually data, but it would send this in in this, this sequenced thing. So everything that was the first word that came out of my mouth was the first word that arrived at the other side. And IP, IP networking is, is very counterintuitive in some ways. It's like, okay, look, we're not going to send this in order and we're not going to send it anything over the same path. We're just going to kind of throw it at the internet, let the internet figure out how to get it or let my network figure out how to get to the other side. And then we'll just, we'll sort it out and reassemble it on the other end, which is miraculous. And one of the downsides that I think you, you pointed to is you, as you start moving to a best effort, you lose some of the, and the word you used, I think, was discrete. Was it discrete timing? Was that the word that you used? I think I was saying d- determinism. Determinism, deterministic, right. Yes, okay, that was, that was the word that I, that I meant yeah. to use. Deterministic, where you say, okay, this thing that I'm putting in on the network is going to arrive at the other end at precisely this time, and the other end knows that. And when you look at sort of modern applications that are being attempted to be delivered over IP networks, you are looking at a lot more applications that have those deterministic qualities. I mean, let's say like cloud robotics. You're just mm-hmm. trying to move the robotic lathe a tenth of a millimeter, and but you need to move it at precisely the right time or within a certain tolerance. And it, it doesn't seem to me that best effort is what you want there. So how how are we reconciling these two worlds now, which is like this incredible foundational technology of TCP IP and packet switched and all these protocols, which have all these best effort characteristics. And yet we have things that have very deterministic needs, like a 5G radio access network or a robotic lathe. How are we squaring that circle? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think if you go into the, if you go into the Wayback Machine and, and think of what the model of the internet looked like in those early days, let, let's say 1995, it's probably what most people think the internet still looks like. It, it had effectively a a bunch of computers that were collected across different households and enterprises. Those were connected through eyeball networks, consumer networks that AT&T and other companies ran. You had transit networks where those eyeball networks were then connected into massive backbones. And those were connected and built by companies like AT&T. All the big telecos had these backbones. And, And the way the economics worked was all the money kind of flowed up and all the pain flowed down. That's a great way of describing it. (laughs) That was kind of the model of the early internet, and it was massively best effort. I think we were in the early days of the internet wasn't really critical infrastructure. It was, I'm just glad it worked, Um, you know, back then. Over time, I think to to the point, we started to 
get a little bit more demanding of the types of services that we wanted from this infrastructure. And, you know, over time, we started to see data centers fall into the, to the heart of the internet. It shifted the critical attention away from the business center, which used to be backbone, into these hyperscale data centers that started to grow. And that started to house all the content. And that co-location of content started to allow some level of service guarantees to be driven. And, and you know, a number of different kind of technologies enable that, cloud computing being probably the most prolific of them. I think what happened as we moved away from just the internet as a series of web pages and the internet as something that can distribute content, we saw another massive change, which started to address this issue of latency, and that was content delivery networks. And you had famously Akamai coming in. These guys created less of a pattern where they're pooling a bunch of servers. They really started to embrace much more of a distributed type of deployment where they would have content caches, you know, near consumer networks or closer to the end user so that, you know, when you pull content, it'll be served locally and you got, got it through the magic of I mean, in many senses, that was the original edge computing. In fact, the earliest reference I can find to the phrase is in the, the scientific paper that the Akamai founders published on how the network works. true. But I, I think the, those things started to tease out how we could deal with things that were latency sensitive, particularly video. And in fact, today, you know, I would argue that most content that consumers access is on net. It's actually not going through an internet. It's going through maybe the first eight hops to your first point of presence. And most of your content is served from that, which really started to, in my mind, break, break up some of the semantics of the internet. So we had this hierarchical thing. Now you have something that instead of hierarchical is really broadly you know, something that's densely connected, that is flatter than it used to be, much flatter than it used to be, that you have these massive hyperscalers who have consumed transit. So transit almost doesn't exist anymore. In terms of the diversity of where your content is served, it used to be that maybe 1,000, 1,500 different ASNs constituted 50% of the traffic. Today, it's probably closer to 10. And we all know who they are. It's like Netflix, Amazon. It's been massively consolidated. And so the heart of the internet has become very opaque and is managed almost through a whole set of proprietary protocols. And certainly on proprietary networks. And I, on proprietary I, networks. Yeah, I think the current yeah. estimate is, is as much as 70% of the traffic on the quote internet, as we think of it, it collectively, both private and public, is on private networks. It's on it, the backbones of Google it, and Facebook and it absolutely Amazon. Is. Yeah. And when I say proprietary, I, maybe I'm being a little fast and loose with it, but it, it comes down to, I remember in the public internet, experimenting with TCP, we had different types of algorithms, like, you know, you had Reno, you had Tahoe, you had Vegas, you had all these different types of methods to do congestion control on the internet over TCP. And it took a long time for any one of them to get adopted and diffused. But now you've got Google and Facebook coming up with, you know, BBR or Quick or whatever, they get distributed through the internet very quickly, largely because they own so much of the internet that they just use it as the, the transport element of choice, a transport protocol of choice in their networks. That, that to me is, you know, a few companies who are able to hold sway over what are the transport protocols that get picked up and as a, as a result get diffused very quickly and impact consumers' lives. That didn't happen before. It used to be governed by a set of 
internet architects and the IAV and IETF who who went through very slow processes and then it had to get adopted commercially and you had this 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 two speed kind of organization on the commercial and on the standards making side that was driving protocols and creating efficiencies in the internet today you know it's all all been really taken over by monopoly sway <laughs> it's, yeah. we're going to do this it reminds me of the early days of Qualcomm when we were doing 3GPP2 where we had a specific cellular protocol in uh, North America, and then you had 3GPP, which was the, the European GSMA-governed protocols. And, you know, the difference between those standards bodies meetings is you'd go to 3GPP2 and Qualcomm would come in with a spec and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And everybody put their hand up and voted on it, and that was done. And then you go to the, this other 3GPP standards body in France, and it would be years of negotiation before they decided to do the next thing. And so the, the, the speed was, was quite a bit different under authoritarian kind of dominion versus, you know, something that's a little bit more egalitarian. Um, and so I think, you know, we're seeing that same kind of thing kind of govern how the architecture of the Internet's being kind of ruled. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. You know, there's this great phrase in open source software, because a, a lot of open source projects that in the original days were the benign benign dictator, right? With the benevolent yeah. dictator, where you had one person who was controlling everything. And I guess Linus Torvaldis is probably the, the yeah. patron saint of that. Yeah. But because you've got this like limited control set of control points, things don't tend to move as quickly as you might want to have them. And so in these larger open source projects that are more distributed, it's it's a very different animal. And like the phrase is code wins, which is stop yeah. talking about it. Just, you know, <laughs> just, just it, it. give it, yeah, sending your pull request. And if the code looks good, then let's let's ship it and we'll roll it back if it breaks. Absolutely. Um, getting back to your original yeah. question of, you know, how did we reconcile TDM mm, with yeah. packet? The, the fact that so much stuff is opaque in the internet we started to embed things. We broke this classic principle, the end-to-end -end principle, mm -hmm. by putting in, you know, middle boxes and things that would do load balancing and things that would do firewalling and distributed denial of service protection and would do packet inspection. And we put network address translation. We started to load up. Yeah. The internet was a bunch of things. Now, a lot of it was to stop it from quaking and to start to put some enforcement in terms of how orderly these packets were getting delivered. And then you reach the apex of that when we start to look at how do I bring timing back into the internet? And you've got IEEE 1588. You've got a whole bunch of Ethernet sync protocols that come in with the attitude of we need to bring some level of synchronization back to the internet to create more predictable streams of, of, of information. Do those, do those predictable networking standards to sort of give them a general, do, do they, do they, do they tend to employ the same strategy? What are the strategies that are employed to sort of marry the best of best effort with the best of determinism? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes down to how do I distribute timing across a network? And of course, when you grow up designing things like Sonnet or, or synchronous digital networks, you're very familiar with, okay, well, now I need to have this this quantum, you know, source of timing. And, you know, we evolved in a number of different ways to, to keep accurate timing, including GPS. But you look for some kind of a, a stable timing source that is authoritative. And um, universal. And universal. And that then kind of drives kind of a, a hierarchy of endpoints that are in synchronous, that are synchronous relative to that timing source. And that 
the different timing sources across the globe are paired with the central timing source, and they're all synchronized. So, so even if even if your time series data arrives in the wrong order, it knows what time each little bit is supposed to be played exactly. or so sent you know to the lathe. Or, yeah. Timing between everything, and you can reorder things, and it becomes, like I said, at the end of the day, much more predictable, and you get much less packet loss and all sorts of other generative benefits. So as these things come in, there is much more of an attention on time. You know, I think we're starting to recognize that time sensitivity can unlock a whole new class of applications that have value. And I think we're we're seeing it from the perspective of particularly video conferencing, because we just lived through the pandemic, that having something that's more predictable in the face of something that's very lossy is is a good thing because it can create better, more intimate discussions. But I think we're also seeing the need, as you mentioned earlier, for very accurate types of control systems that are need for robotic control, those types of things are becoming more and more in demand as, as we roboticize factories, as we put mechanized and, and, and cobot-like technologies into factories and, and, and into everyday spaces, they require finer grain control. And that, that level of system needs something that's more reliable and more predictable. Yeah, really interesting. So let's let's put a pin in that. I want to come back to yeah. all that, but I didn't want to lose track of where we started, which mm-hmm. was sort of how you ended up to where you are. So right. so you hardware engineer, and then how did you get from there to, to where you are now, which is at Dell? You know, uh, like, as I said, I started off as a hardware engineer. I started to uh, work on at Nortel or at Bell Northern Research. We called them Christmas projects, where you basically got an assignment for the year where you would develop something really cool. And then the VP would come at the end of the year and take a look at it. And everybody would smile and say, okay, what are you doing next year? Some of them got productized. Some of them didn't. It was kind of a, an interesting day. It was an interesting era in corporate research where you had the luxury. Yeah, of, very Xerox Park-like. Yeah, doing, doing things that were interesting. So a lot of my, my background and, and skills came out and were, were kind of grown during that period of about five years. The, the first project I took on was this, this extended architecture core, which was a, a multiprocessing system for doing call processing. And, you know, that, that was one of the, probably the most risky project I've ever been involved with in, in that every technology in it was new. It was a, let's do a contactless backplane. So everything's inductively coupled and I can just add in as many as I want and never have to worry about capacitive skew on the, the backend traces. So that was one of them. Let, let's come up with a new shared memory system. Let's come up with a different processing architecture. We're moving away from standard x86 to risk processing. We, we brought in the new Motorola architecture and IBM architectures for PowerPC, which formed kind of the heart of our, our processing platform. And we developed gigabit speed links. This was back in the 90s, which was pretty fantastic. Quite, quite an accomplishment back then. So all sorts of new technologies got embedded and all the risk on those technologies compounded. It took about, I would say, roughly five years to deliver that project and uh, became very successful afterwards, an amazingly successful project. But um, it really gave me the battle scars of how do you manage development project when you have so many random variables? And how do you go about prototyping and de-risking that technology so that you can create an end product or an outcome that you know is executable. That was a, a great set of learnings. Following that particular experience, Nortel went through the transition to IP, forming what our CEO at the time called the right angle turn. 
And we made an acquisition of a large company, Bay Networks. I got involved in the terabit routing craze. So Nortel had maybe several terabit routing platforms. I was doing something called the Optera Packet Core platform. Became very, very invested in quality of service, which was hard to describe quality of service to someone who's not necessarily a practitioner, but it has a long and sorted history and has roots in our discussion about how do you move from TDM to packet and still preserve some level of determinism. And this was this was effectively the, the answer was, oh, we'll put quality of service mechanisms in. And there was this fairly lengthy debate in standards around something called InterServe, where you basically had an end-to-end path where you were exchanging context in terms of different types of admission control and scheduling criteria between the nodes in that path so that a packet could go through and get you know, relatively the same treatment. And there were infinite knobs that could be pulled and, and set in order to make this apply to a particular scenario, which we realized was just unmanageable. And so a lot of it got reduced to something called diff serve, where there was a hop-by-hop behavior that was put into place. And those exist in most of the, the routers and switches that are deployed globally, but very rarely used. Because what people realized was if you start to have problems in terms of delivery of a packet from one end to the next, whether it's jitter or latency, the best thing to do is just to put a faster pipe in place. And the speed of those pipes being developed relative to the need of quality of service, which was really for throttled or constrained pipes, was outpaced. It was quicker to just put in a faster pipe than to learn the management skills needed to tune and optimize these knobs. So quality of service, you know, was was something I was I was uh, was very invested in. I did a lot of research into it. How, how do you install a pipe that's faster than the speed of light? That's what <laughs> well, I want to know. <laughs> well, that might be quantum entanglement. I, I don't think we're there as yet, but you can do some interesting things to increase the speed. You can increase transmission speed. It's very difficult to increase propagation speed. You're limited by the physical medium, which is uh, interesting. What's the difference between propagation and transmission? So propagation speed is governed by the distance over which you have to travel in a given medium. So on an optical path, it's close to the speed of light is what the propagation speed is. And that'll tell you what the delay across that link is. A transmission speed is the time it takes a full packet so it's all the overhead and the... To move through, yeah. And, and that's usually more of a function of channel bandwidth. Yeah. So the, there, there are subtly two different things. The reason why that distinction is actually really important is it, it actually helps to shine a light on what are some of the limitations of edge computing. And that edge computing is, is largely a phenomenon of reducing propagation delay, but it's still limited by transmission delays. So if you want to get an edge node deployed in a metro site that's a hop away from an end user, you're closer in terms of placing that compute closer to the user. But if all of your delay is actually in that last hop, let's say it's a a wireless hop, it doesn't matter. The transmission speed of that hop is actually the bottleneck uh, in terms of delivery of the service. If If it's compute constrained, then the same logic applies. It's not necessarily a propagation delay. It's actually... The, the way I'm computing on that on a particular workload, a good good example would be like a cloud gaming or something like that, where doing doing all the computation to, to render a particular image typically takes longer than the actual propagation delay itself. And so, backend server architecture 
and the, the, the application architecture dominate in the equation in terms of where the delay is. So coming back to this notion of you know why those two things are important in edge computing, you can't just have an edge compute appliance. You also need to have a fast link or fast enough link, somewhere around 200 megabits per second. Yeah, super, super interesting. So how'd you end up at Dell? So I go through Nortel, I, I go into optical after packet, and most people who go into optical end up going into wireless. Uh, and that's the exact same career trajectory I had. I was developing 10 gigabit per second systems and looking at these really interesting Moxender lasers in order to affect that transition. And a lot of those analog analytics technologies that you use apply equivalently to wireless and found myself at Nortel during the boom days of wireless as we were moving from kind of 1G to 2G and 2G to 3G. And Nortel, you know, kind of propels me all the way up to the beginning of LTE before they go bankrupt. At that point, I decided I don't want anything to do with telecom. It left a sour taste in my mouth. And I went to Santa Clara to join a small Ethernet switching company called Extreme, where I was their group CTO for, for about a year. I got to work for Mark Canepa, who was CEO at the time. He is from Sun fame, where he, he led the storage division. So I felt that there was a lot I could learn from him. But uh, you know, it turns out just doing one technology when you're in telecom, you usually have your fingers in a lot of different technologies. is pretty boring. So I, I, I left Extreme, went to Ericsson, was there for the launch of 4G at AT&T. I was a North American CTO and had a marketing and strategy. So back into telecom, but not on R&D, in the market, kind of understanding how the customers were reacting to all this technology that we had developed. So got a new, unique perspective on, on wireless. I decided uh, I'd go into the operator side because I want to understand, well, how are people using this and what does it take to operate it? Give another lens into telecom and I was a group CTO at a, at a company called Telstra in Australia. And then finally to say, really, to, to complete my whole telecom journey, the, the thing I should do now is to form my own startup and run my own company. So I returned to North America from Australia, was in Colorado. I had a joint venture with Lockheed Martin to develop stratospheric airships that could keep station and could ultimately be used by kind of a, you know, a low Earth orbit satellite. In this case, it's not orbiting the Earth, it's 20 kilometers into the stratosphere. And that could provide macro area coverage for 5G using spot beam antennas. That it turned out to be very capital intensive to build out. <laughs> a lot of people were interested in it. We did spin out some of the technologies to form kind of free space optics systems for backhaul. But ultimately, closing out that company opened a door into Dell, where they had just been at the tail end of their the merger with EMC. The CTO for Dell, John Rose, was a mentor of mine. And he opened the door and said, hey, we're looking at you know, kind of reestablishing what our technology agenda is. I need your help to come in and do that. And so that that was kind of the journey to Dell. It was And what's your what's your role at Dell now? So my my initial role was to really help to develop the strategy pillars for Dell in terms of their technology agenda, which is what we call the big six at Dell. It it starts off as 5G, edge computing, basically cloud computing or multi-cloud computing, security, AI and data management. So th those were the the big six areas that we had identified as keys to Dell's future. Several of those have become business units or product units at Dell, the more, most prominent of which is the telecom systems business unit, 
where we made an investment in the industry into 5G and into open RAN architectures. And we now have a data management business in our ISG business unit and an edge product unit within ISG as well. So three of them are kind of up and running. We're in the middle of developing our security strategy into kind of a horizontal product strategy for the company. And then obviously the the multi-cloud stuff is translated into our Apex project. And the only one that's kind of been maybe not addressed through as discrete an organization has been AI. And AI, as it turns out, has infected pretty much all of Dell products, whether whether it's how do I do AI development with our storage systems? How do I do training and inferencing with our, our new compute systems and accelerators? All of those things kind of have really been part of our AI portfolio. And we've also kind of advanced a lot of things in terms of using AI in our Dell products for doing prediction and maintenance, those types of things. So so a lot of the, the threads of that particular role kind of... Uh, you know, my, my image of Dell is still largely shaped by my experience in its early days sure. as a PC clone maker, right? And it, as a the sort of faster, better, cheaper version of what I could get from IBM. Right. And what you've just described to me is a, a, a multi-vertical conglomerate in technology. So it sounds like a pretty profound shift in Dell. And Dell's mm. gone through different lives, right? I mean, it just... It, it acquired VMware and you know right. through, and then and then it it it, it divested of VMware mm-hmm. which now be part of part of Broadcom and you probably will end up competing with them maybe but essentially so what what percentage of Dell it's just kind of random question do you would you say is software versus hardware most of Dell is what an engineer would say is software um, most most of Dell yeah. So, you know, whether it's software-defined storage or whether it's the embedded code that we deploy in our servers or whether it's... That's so interesting because I think of Dell as selling iron. Yeah. Now, what what I think, you know, distinguishes kind of this this definition of, of when we say software and embedded software versus, let's say, kind of um, client-facing applications, those are very different things. So, so much of Dell does not do web applications or, or isn't driving a ten ton of user interfaces at the end of the day. We do do that, but that's the minority of the development. The majority of the development's in embedded compute. And so there's a lot of software code that goes behind the scenes in terms of enabling that. Yeah, super interesting, super interesting. And then this telecom business that you've started up, when I think of telecom, I think of everything from the processors that Qualcomm and Intel make to the baseband units and antennas that the Ericsson's and Nokia's make. Where where does Dell's role in telecom begin and end? Like, how do you see yourself relating to the entire industry in terms of what you provide yeah. and what who you compete with? So telecom is a, it's a really interesting space in that it was dominated really for the past you know, 50, 60 years by serving services. And particularly if we look into the to the wireless era, when, let's say 2000, when 3G starts to take hold, it's the first time that it moves beyond voice and you start getting the ability to consume data. And it really creates this era of what I'll call the pocket internet. People were able to look up web apps and run searches on their feature phones and they could still send texts and they can talk and communicate. So it's primarily communication medium, but now I have an opportunity to do internet browsing. It was 4G, it shifts yet again subtly in, in two dimensions, one of which is now I'm, I'm getting something called a smartphone, 
which is more than a feature phone. I'm not going through this proxy gateway to get into the internet. I'm able to access the internet through some revolutions that companies like Apple introduce. And so now you've got this iconic iPhone that comes out 2007 or so. It's timed near the release of 4G, which comes out in 2010. And people are starting to, to use many more applications on this iPhone. You know, those applications are mated with server backends. And you start to see this separation of content from carrier, which never had occurred before. Wireless connection was, in fact, a voice connection. You was indistinguishable between the two. Now you've got this, you know, bifurcation. And that, that fundamentally changes a lot of things in the internet. We start to see this content economy start to take off. And 4G is really the tipping point where it's all about video and video starts to dominate. And so as 3G comes out of the portable internet era, you go into 4G, it's video. Suddenly 5G comes along. And the nice thing about portable internet and video is that you're catering to consumer needs and demands. And at the same time, we were in the middle of really trying to diffuse that technology, for instance, in North America, across 300 million people or so in the U.S. And so even in 2010, there were people who didn't have smartphones. So there was an opportunity for growth. You build out that network, more people were going to be added in as as customers, and these operators who are building the networks were going to get the, the subscription revenues and then they could upsell on data plans because they need more data. Now we're in an era of flat rate pricing. The consumer markets are saturated. The opportunity for growth in 5G is a big question mark. Is it just going to be we're going to get faster and it's completely hygiene? And if you want to be competitive as an operator, you're going to have to upgrade to 5G to keep up. It seems not, not the right answer at the end of the day. It seems like we're making up an economy. But it turns out there's another market to focus on. It's the enterprise market. And of course, when you say enterprise, it's almost ubiquitous with Dell. Dell is serving the enterprise market, whether it's on the client side or whether it's on the infrastructure side. We have a massive field organization. We have intimacy with a lot of the enterprises that would need this type of connectivity service. And so that, that kind of starts to ring the bell, the first bell for, for Dell getting involved in 5G and telecom infrastructure. The second bell that gets rung is, well, 5G is recognizing that there isn't just one architecture. There isn't just one way to implement 5G. And the way we've implemented telecom infrastructure has always been some proprietary implementation that a large network equipment provider puts out. It might be standardized in terms of the cellular needs and specifications so there's interworking, but fundamentally the way you built them were largely interoperable, not interoperable. So there's new set of implementation tenets come in and people start to talk about, well, let's disaggregate hardware from software. Let's not make them tightly coupled. Right. Let's virtualize our network functions. Let's, let's virtualize yeah, op functions. open the RAN interface. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's do all these different things. Let's separate user and control. Let's do all these classical things that we've learned from in terms of how to scale IT infrastructure. We started to apply that to IT. And suddenly cloud-based technologies are making their way into the telecom architecture. Or carrier architecture, yeah. And we start to we start to And they're just an enterprise at some level. That's right. They probably cool. buy lots of Dell stuff anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. so this, this movement towards cloud-aligned technologies, 
this movement towards standardizing the underlying performance layer and separating the, the application from, from the underlying compute opens the door for Dell. So we saw architecturally, this is an industry that is is basically coming to the heartland of Dell's R&D engine. So those two things really made us very interested to understand how we could position ourselves. What we saw was this emergence of a of kind of a movement called Open RAN. And you, you've got the telephony infrastructure project that was under Facebook. You've got the ORAN Alliance, which has a number of different telecom vendors and operators involved in it, start to come out to start to specify, okay, what does an open RAN look like? And, and we're using, as opposed to, you know, the old 3GPP standards-based mechanisms to advocate for architectures, this was a, very much an open source project. And with that, we felt, you know, if it was going to take root, we were kind of going to need to, to do the equivalent of what Red Hat did for Linux, Someone needs to productize and industrialize the open source elements so that we can create a marketplace. And it needed to be a company that had significant scale that could impact the market, all of which kind of led us to believe that we would have the opportunity to be a critical part of that. And so we invested in really trying to create that marketplace. And we felt that the one thing that was really needed was someone who could take all these components from different vendors. There's a lot of startups in this space. There is a lot of a lot of different a lot of different contributors into the open RAN ecosystem that needed someone who could take them all and build an end-to-end system, be the system integrator of record, and then deliver that as you know whole cloth back to the operator community. And so that that's where Dell kind of started to spend a lot of their resources and investments was the understanding that many of these companies are software-based companies and would need a standardized performance layer based on Dell servers, which is obviously the way we're capturing value from this ecosystem. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.